1: During this podcast, I'll discuss with Daniel Dawes, Morehouse School of Medicine's director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute, his recently published book, The Political Determinants of Health. Mr. Dawes, welcome back to the program.
0: Thank you so much, David, for having me. It's great to be on.
1: Listeners may recall I interviewed uh, Daniel Dawes uh, in April 2017 regarding his previous work, 150 Years of Obamacare. Mr. Dawes's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, it's appropriate to discuss the political determinants of health. Since two days ago, we marked the 10-year anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, along with passage of Medicare and Medicaid legislation in 1965, the most important political determinant of health in our history legislatively. It's worth noting as well the ACA largely constitutes civil right legislation, by extending coverage to those previously denied it. Research published earlier this month concluded, the ACA produced broad gains in insurance coverage that, quote-unquote, coverage increased most among groups whose members were most likely uninsured before reform, and that would be racial and ethnic minority groups. As Mr. Dawes appropriately notes in his volume, there is a causal link between political determinants and health inequalities. We do well remember the 19th century German physician, Rudolf Virko, whom argued we should think of medicine as a social science, meaning collective action, is required to address social inequalities' contribution to ill health. I hope listeners will take the time to listen to my March 10th conversation with Joseph Lobrera at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities regarding the current administration's SNAP funding cuts with me again to discuss his recently published book, The Political Terms of Health, is Daniel Dawes. Daniel, with that, uh, thank you for your time. Very appreciative. Let's start, and I know you like to discuss uh, history in your writings. So once again, I noted uh, your discussion or noting uh, the 1864 Freedmen's Bureau Bill. So if you could discuss um, the impetus for that, what it attempted to do, what was its fate, because I think that sets up uh, history, and, and where we are currently relative to uh, political determinants.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, David. So, you know, in, in the book, what I wanted to do was to showcase those few times when health equity champions and leaders uh, try to tackle the political determinants of, of health inequities, right? And w- we start back a little bit further, even. In, in 1790, When health equity leaders uh, and champions, actually in 1789, when health equity leaders and champions had approached our first Congress and were identifying, you know, leaders who they thought would embrace this agenda. And they approached uh, Benjamin Franklin and said, uh, Benjamin Franklin, would you please lend your name, use your platform? To, to tackle these inequities, not only abolish uh, slavery, but, but to provide individuals who are enslaved, those with mental illness, uh, those who are homeless, et cetera. Would you help us to craft a letter that um, would uh, talk about these points or really push this agenda uh, with the newly formed Congress? And uh, Benjamin Franklin decided, yes, I will certainly do that. And um, he signed the letter. They sent it to this newly formed Congress. And as you can imagine, it really incited, it stoked um, some major tensions within the Senate and the House. Folks were really upset with Benjamin Franklin for even um, uh, sending this letter in light of the fact that they were trying to get settled, right? We're a newly formed constitutional government. We need time. So the Senate decided to ignore his letter, but the House decided to respond. And bullet by bullet, they responded saying why they could not Stop the separation of uh, women from their children, the separation of families, why they couldn't provide health care services uh, to these vulnerable populations, uh, why they couldn't provide adequate clothing and, and access to, to appropriate food, nutritious foods, right? What we would now deem the social determinants of health. and And they made that confederalism argument that it's really not the right or the role of mm-hmm. the federal government to be providing those. It's it's the state governments that should be providing um, those uh, necessities of life. And um, and so three weeks after that letter was uh, sent back or the response was sent to Benjamin Franklin, unfortunately, he passed away. And that was really the first time in our nation's history in which the light of health equity had dinned um, from a policy standpoint. Then afterwards, it would take decades now to get folks involved from the mental health reform movement with Dorothea Dix uh, right up to uh, the Freedmen's Bureau Act when folks said, you know what, we're in this major civil war. Um, and what's been interesting about our history is that history has shown that pandemics, natural disasters, recessions, depressions, and even wars have a way of bringing about a sea change when it comes to crafting more effective and um, more compassionate health policies. And this was certainly the case uh, during the Civil War movement. And during this, this uh, opportunity, this effort, the health equity leaders at the time really were pushing for a bill that would again tackle these, uh, what we now know as these social determinants. You know, providing education and employment opportunities, providing security for these newly freed people and um, for poor whites who were displaced, um, especially in the South, primarily because of the war, and, and making sure they provided um, uh, health care services and the like. But during the debate over that uh, Freedmen's Bureau Act, um, if you thought that that 1790 um, uh, debate was contentious, this was even more contentious. You know, because now they've introduced a bill, now they're moving this forward, and people did not want to see that, see the light of day. But President Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's supporters, really pushed um, aggressively to get it done. And during the negotiations, the one piece, that one provision of the law that, that opponents of equity could not, uh, could not accept was the provision of medical care to newly freed people. They could not uh, get their arms around it. They could not support it. But they agreed to these other social determinants, right? Mm-hmm. So they moved along. They get the bill passed. And right after, a few weeks after, President Lincoln was assassinated. And what, what happened then, right after that, was you had his supporters uh, feeling empowered, right? They believed that as part of his legacy – Uh, And and, and in 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 a second look at the language of the statute, that they had the authority to really provide healthcare services to these uh, newly freed people and poor whites, and so they went about establishing a huge medical division, right? Mm -hmm. And they got that up and running, and they pushed it. So it's been a very interesting tale that uh, with the Freedmen's Bureau Act, because as you might recall, it took year after year seven years after that bill was passed into law opponents of that effort that health equity effort really were successful in repealing it in in undermining it and um terminating the the freedmen's bureau um um as we know it so it would take decades afterwards till we saw more movement in pushing and prioritizing equity within policy
1: Thank you. So, as you note, uh, the medical division um, attempted to provide medical care for five of the five million freed slaves uh, post-Civil yep. uh, War. It was reauthorized annually, and then you note in yep. the discussion it's shut down eventually, uh, not long after 1872. Um, so, right. effective, uh, sadly, but short-lived. And then your book discusses, uh, and then, there's, of course, there's this long pause, and then you discuss, or this comes back, for example, in your discussion of Hill-Burton under Truman. Uh, there's a National School Lunch Program or Act that Ronald Reagan looked at disfavorably. Uh, President Carter in '80 had a Mental Health Systems Act. So there's other mm-hmm. like legislation between then uh, and now. Let's let's go to the specifics of um, political determinants, and then we'll get to uh, context, current context, and you note three primary political determinants um, that you note and discuss. Can you identify those and give a brief overview of why you note those as the three primary?
0: Absolutely. So, so in, in the book, you know, I explore all the things um, that contribute to health and survival in this country for our most vulnerable populations, including uh, three major aspects, voting, mm-hmm. government, and policy, Right. And the reason I did that is because as I kept thinking about these multiple interacting determinants of health, right, and their impact on our overall health. And, and what, what scientists, what researchers um, have have shown us uh, over the last few years in terms of what really plays an outsized role in our overall health, they've looked at the social determinants of health, the behavioral health determinants and so forth, and, 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 and they stopped there. And I found it very interesting because, you know, underlying every single one of these social determinants is a political determinant, a political action and action. And so we need to zoom out even further to understand those pieces. And and as I think about the political determinants of health, you know, I I see it as involving um, a systematic process of structuring relationships, distributing resources and administering power operating simultaneously in ways that mutually reinforce or influence one another to shape opportunities that either advance health equity or exacerbate health inequities. So the way I look at this is through the lens of, okay, let's see how voting impacts health. What are the challenges and opportunities there, right? How can we use voting, which is usually deemed the front line? how can we use that, that part of the process to, to bypass government, for instance, right? If we have a government that is not um, receptive to this health equity agenda, how might you be able to bypass them to get your policy agenda through? And so we talk about ballot augmentation in the book. Um, How in the world can you work with a government then that is keen on um, shredding, you know, whatever public policy agenda you might have into pieces? How can you work with them? in such a situation. And then with the policy piece, right, which we know uh, concretizes these decisions by by government uh, officials, how can we ensure that they are taking an equity lens uh, to their work? So I think one of the things that's really interesting about today, um, you know, it's really interesting, especially as we discuss Um, These issues two days after the 10th anniversary of the Mm -hmm. Affordable Care Act being signed into law, which I deem as the most uh, comprehensive and inclusive health law that we've ever had passed at the federal level here in the United States. Um, There are certainly lessons to be learned from that. But what we have now is the perfect storm for a disaster, right? A serious health crisis going on and an equitable method of health delivery, millions of uninsured people, an uneven and politically charged approach to dealing with this pandemic that we're in, an upcoming election, and and, and some of the most vulnerable people on the front lines keeping our country going. All of these things leave us vulnerable, and they shine a huge spotlight on the holes and the gaps and the, the shortfalls in our current system. And so I, I, I found it very necessary to, to actually single them out from voting. What has happened there that we can leverage or the challenges there, right? When we talk about, you know, um, uh, structuring relationships, looking at redistricting, that redistricting process and how that is used to structure relationships, right? Um, administering power, how g- uh, gerrymandering has been used um, for such causes. And and distributing resources, right? Especially as we look at what's happening with this pandemic today, with with access to the um, to the tests, right? Mm-hmm. And then access, hopefully, to treatments once that's uh, created, and the vaccines and so forth. So these are things that are being magnified today. That I think um, the book really does uh, align and showing how we can tackle some of these issues.
1: Okay, thank you. I, I have to say that in reading the volume, uh, I was I was found cause to recall uh, Martin Luther King's uh, speech uh, where he uh, discussed time. I'm sure you will remember these uh, words. Um, Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes with the tireless efforts and persistent work. Absent hard work, time becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. Time is always ripe to do right. So I, I, I heard that while I was... Well, I was reading this volume. Let's go to, since this is two days past the ten-year mark, uh, yeah. let me ask you about the Affordable Care Act. I know you you understand the politics of it, the substance of it, extremely yeah. well. Expert on this um, uh, uh, legislation, so um, you're well aware the ACA remains uh, politically uh, polarizing legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Candidly, I've struggled for 10 years to understand um, why that is the case. There are several theories why the Republicans remained consistently hostile toward this legislation. I'm sure you will remember 2017, those efforts, uh, defeated only by, of course, John McCain's vote. Um, there is a theory. There are lots of theories. I'll cite one. Paul Krugman has argued, for example, that the Republicans have opposed it because it runs counter to the theory that government's uh, the problem, not the solution. Um, but... Uh, what's your theory um, relative to, and particularly since we're now 10 years past this legislation, why this remains such a polarizing um, piece of legislation?
0: You know, that, that really is a great point. I, I think, you know, this is, this is an issue where you had um, President Obama, uh, uh, first African-American president, who has seen this as his signature, uh, policy achievement. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there are a host of factors. I think, you know, the Krugman, um, uh, theory is, is a good one. Uh, I do think ideologically there are folks who are opposed to that, but interestingly enough, as we're, uh, going through this pandemic, it's amazing to see attitudes change very quickly, right. Mm-hmm. When, uh, when it could directly affect, uh, you and, 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 um, uh, the groups that uh, you care about. So I think you know there are issues uh, stemming from uh, racism. I think there are folks who early on, from what we recall, um, thought that the bill was going to help uh, African Americans more than it would help whites or other groups, uh, which you know was an absolute falsehood. It has helped more whites than any other group, and um, and and then you know I think in terms of what. Uh, was in this bill it was a comprehensive agenda and this country has you know when you talk about we talked about federalism versus confederalism Uh, usually in this country in order to get a bipartisan health equity bill passed it's had to be done in a very limited very uh, narrow fashion piecemeal fashion Um, every time that we've had a comprehensive uh, health equity uh, policy passed it's been done um, mostly on a bipartisan, on on a partisan basis, right? Mm -hmm. As you heard me recount, starting from the Freedmen's Bureau Act, right? And we can come all the way through history, as you were recounting earlier. So I think there is a lot of ignorance, um, or there was a lot more ignorance. I'm I'm glad that there are more people today now who are seeing it for what it is. It really was just um, political um, pandering, right? And um, now folks are recognizing, wait a second, some of these things that – you know, we heard from opponents of this law are not true. And now they're seeing how, in fact, it maybe even saving the lives of some of their loved ones. So it's gotten some time, unlike the Freedmen's Bureau Act, it's had time to be implemented. Now we know, as you mentioned, that um, President Trump and um, others in the administration uh, from the campaign until today were keen on shredding Obamacare to pieces and uh, have, have not stopped in their approach to undermine it. But now, all of a sudden, with this catastrophe upon us, uh, now want to, ironically, uh, open up uh, the Obamacare exchanges, the health insurance exchanges, uh, to allow people to come in and get insured. Right, anticipating, to enroll, yes, yes. on um, the yes. great need before us, right. So I, I think there, there are many theories in, in, you know, out there as to, as to why this is. It could be, you know, simple disgust. Uh, because Obama's uh, name is attached. It could be because there is a level of racism involved. Um, uh, It could be because of ideology, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I think my conclusion is there never was a real reason. It was politics. And so a a fool's errand on my part to try to find out what was a real reason. (laughs) I will say, I should have uh, prefaced, your chapter four of your book provides a very good accounting of uh, the so-called sausage-making as it relates to 09, early 10 in moving uh, the bill. Uh, You note in the volume uh, structural racism, um, Mm -hmm. possibly moreover in your discussion in Chapter 7 of Flint, and these days all you need to say is the name of the city, Flint, and we know what we're talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. So my question is, uh, where do you think we are uh, on the policy front as it relates to, and of course we know where Trump is, and the current administration, but uh, that aside, uh, your sense of where we are relative to making progress in addressing this issue as it relates to health care, or it seems to me it seems like one step forward, two steps back. Uh, I ask in part because um, you may have noticed last June in JAMA there was research published concluding, quote, unquote, there is a clear lack of progress on health equity during the past 25 years in the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. sobering conclusion. So what's your general assessment? Uh, I, I, I did, did sense, prior your comment on the pandemic, maybe, sadly, the silver lining of that is, well, maybe we should think healthcare care is important uh, because uh, we got nearly now 30 million uh, uninsured, the uh, same number, underinsured. You know, we have 16 million uh, undocumented, half of whom or uninsured and various other problems. I don't know if you saw just complete um, last week. The Princeton Economist came out with the volume uh, deaths of despair. That's the um, that's the non-degreed uh, white non-Hispanic population who, ironically, are the president's base and they're the most vulnerable. Uh, if you look at, uh, leaving aside suicide and drug overdoses. Uh, there are longevities declining for all causes
0: yeah i I you know thank you for raising that because I think the answer for me it's a mixed bag, right? Yes, we have seen increase in coverage, but then there's still these um, structural barriers right, preventing folks from accessing um from for a host of reasons, and when I think about where we are, we know that the Trump administration has been trying to roll back many of these health equity provisions, specifically in the Affordable Care Act, and they've even gone further. Programs that were established, authorized, codified into law, from the Reagan administration to the George H.W. Bush administration to the Clinton and George W. Bush and then Obama administrations, a lot of those, both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations, uh, we've had to prevent their, um, their repeal. Quite mm-hmm. frankly, and it has been a, a very um, uh, terrible experience to have to go through this. But it, it, it kind of gives you a sense into what others in the past had to endure, such as you know during the Freedmen's Bureau Act, where they were trying to push back and protect as much of the law, or if not all of it, but lost lost the um, battle. Mm-hmm. In this case, where I stand now is you. you talked about uh, you know diseases of despair. Um, and I look at it, you know, Michael Marmot uh, has a sure. great, he, he made a great reference um, out of um, London. Um, as we know, he's one of the pioneers in the social determinants of health movement. And uh, he yes, says, you know, sir life Michael. expectancy. Yes, yes. yes, sir, Michael Marmot. <laughs> right. That's right. So, sir, uh, sir, sir, Marmot uh, stated that, you know, um, life expectancy as a measure of health tells us a great deal about how society is doing. But the inequalities in that society tells us even more, right? Mm-hmm. And that is so true. When you break down, so we know that we rank 43rd today. And, and we have seen that decline now, um, starting from 40 years ago, right? From 1980, we were at 14th. We ranked 14th in the world in terms of life expectancy that decreased uh, substantially down in 2008, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after that, we went to 35th. Uh, a, a few years ago, right before Trump comes in, and then today we rank 43rd. And The Lancet um, published a major uh, peer-reviewed article showing the, um, the life expectancy by country in the next 20 years, what that's going to look like. And America, the United States, will fall about 21 points in the ranking, right? So we're going to fall 21 places to 64th in the world in terms of our life expectancy, and if you break down by race uh, how folks are fearing, so let's say whites in this country, they were their own country, right, they right. would rank 50th in the world in terms of life expectancy, okay? Five-zero. They would rank even lower than the national life expectancy when you aggregate every group. Mm-hmm. If you look at African Americans in this country, they were their own country. They would rank 103rd in the world. And if you looked at Native Americans in this country, they would rank 143rd in, this, in, in the world. And it is a very frightening um, uh, thing to, to, to see. And it's, and it's going to even get worse over the next 20 years. So the, the bottom line is, you know, we all could be doing better. We all need to be doing better for economic and national security purposes, right? So if our government, there are two essential arguments that have resonated with with our policymakers here in the United States. The only way that we've been able to push policy has been to align the agenda with the commercial interest and a government investment value, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so interestingly enough, um, every time we've been able to do that, we've been able to see some traction on on this effort. And so it is very clear, and I spelled that out in the book about how exactly that's been done. But I think people need to be aware that unless we come together on these pieces, unless we are more inclusive in our policies, unless we adopt an equity lens to the policy, we are never going to move the needle for everyone. And everyone is so interconnected in this country. So if you don't think that what's affecting African-Americans will affect um, you or what's affecting this group uh, or another group is going to affect you, it surely does. As we are seeing now, with the uh, COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic.
1: You know, you're absolutely right because the white population is going from majority to plurality and yeah. minority population. So it's it's switching and that explains in part why we're dropping. Uh, exactly. In that That's we have right. a very unhealthy, uh, generally speaking, our minority populations are disproportionately yes. unhealthy. Um, Correct. Sad to say, I was reminded... I did note uh, or did uh, make note your comment about uh, 50th and 143rd for Native Americans. You concluded with, I thought, a very choice uh, quotation by uh, Hubert Humphrey, the moral test of government is how the government treats those in the dawn of life and the twilight of life and those in the shadows of life, and that's what we're talking about yeah. here. You know, per your comment about the unwinding um just to throw, of course, you're well aware. Since you mentioned Ronald Reagan, this administration has expanded the global, so-called global gag rule. Otherwise, the Mexico rule. Uh, they promulgated and finalized this conscience rule for healthcare workers, uh, work requirements, et cetera. Uh, the list goes on. Um, you conclude Chapter Six by stating, unless society begins to employ a new ecological and multidisciplinary approach. And understand the leverage, uh, and and understand and leverage the political determinants of health. Health equities may get worse before they get better. You have stated that here. I, I will ask um, to what extent uh, you do note natural disasters. Our listeners of this podcast are well aware that I've obsessed over the last several years on the climate crisis. Probably have done eight or so interviews on that subject. I mean, you'd have to. I would. Uh, suspect agree that when you throw in uh, who's vulnerable to climate change or the climate crisis um, you're really putting health equity uh, at risk you you would not you would agree I would imagine
0: absolutely absolutely I mean we see the effects of uh, climate change in terms of um, climate gentrification rising sea levels and it's it's been a fascinating study to look at you know how even that one issue, when you look at natural disasters, you talk. look at Katrina, you look at the response that we have uh, to Hurricane Maria, right, mm-hmm. when it impacted Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, versus Hurricane Michael when it hit the United States or, or, or uh, another hurricane um, that hit Texas. Herma, uh, right, yes. The, uh, r- exactly. The, the response has been very interesting, very different, right, um, when it impacts, let's say, uh, groups of individuals, people of color primarily, in the islands versus here on the mainland.
1: Yes, yeah, stark, and stark you... difference. Correct. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then, and then, even you know, when you look, what's been interesting to me, uh, and I highlight this, of course, is um, the fact that with with climate gentrification as well, many groups, starting with policies. Um, Uh, from FDR, when we look at the Homeowners Loan Corporation Act, and then uh, how it intentionally redlined communities, right, from there, which then Mm -hmm. the commercial uh, interest came in and started redlining after the government had initiated that piece. When you look at that, and then you look at other policies, um, from urban uh, renewal policies, Housing um, Act, um, to the Highway Act, and others from the 1940s all the way to the 1970s, how many of these policies, federal policies, um, in, in addition to state and local policies, you know, really led to then the the disruption in communities, uh, cutting communities half. You you, as, as you've gone around and you looked at, um, you know, uh, let's say Miami, St. Petersburg, Atlanta, Georgia, and other uh, cities that I've had the opportunity to visit, and, and, and you see these highways going through, you never really think, as I've spoken with leaders, uh, to say, how in the world did this come up? And some of those older adults, right, who've been around for a while will say, well, gosh, I remember when, you know, they came in and uh, folks said, oh, to my parents, they have to leave and to give them something, which, you know, today we know was um, substantially lower than what they really should have gotten. They exercise their eminent domain powers. Mm -hmm. They build these highways, cutting through these neighborhoods, predominantly African-American communities um and 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 other you know um vulnerable populations cuts through then you see them turning areas near these um, places into parking lots uh where these folks are parking buses and parking um, other other automobiles increasing the rates of asthma um, from the highways from the parking lots uh disrupting again uh the very fabric of these communities over time and yes it is a social determinant as we see today but again it's so important that we recognize the underlying political determinant that caused it because, David, one of the, the biggest arguments right now that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping folks who, you know, are in the public health arena, in, in medicine, in health policy, et cetera, that they recognize is that, you know, the, if we continue to push that these are solely um, socially derived, we are bolstering the Supreme Court's argument, right? that this is a, a, a the inequities were established um, owing to private choices because of social determinants. As a result, if that's the case, then the Supreme Court does not have to find a legal remedy. They do not have to find any remedy in law then because their argument is that it's socially derived. We need to make sure, as health equity leaders, that we recognize that there is a political underpinning to every single one of these inequities, in our country so that we can continue to push back on those attempts by the courts by our policymakers uh, who will argue that um, you know there is no remedy to say wait a second yes there is uh, we know the courts have been saying recently so the first the Supreme Court had argued that there really is no uh, there there's no uh, political determinant that causes inequities then they you know backpedaled a bit and said over time yes okay, fine, let's say these vestiges of slavery and um, mm-hmm. of segregation and so forth uh, were politically derived. Well, they're so far removed, right, from that political determinant that uh, they're now in the social sphere. And so while we continue to, continue to publish uh, numerous articles showing these social determinants of health, I want to really press upon uh, health equity-minded people, leaders and scholars and others, to continue to zoom out a bit, continue to dig a little bit deeper to make sure that they can show the connection not only to a social determinant, but dig even further to that political determinant. Because as we know, science, um, epigeneticists, and others have been so successful in showing how many of these inequities right, um, that were, again, created by a policy do still matter. They are still impacting many of these communities today right, in a very negative manner.
1: Right, absolutely. Um, on the red and you caused me to recall Coates' famous now uh, Atlantic Monthly article about Chicago housing. Uh, this could turn into a discussion on crit- critical race theory. Um, mm-hmm. Sadly, though, I think we're probably at about our time. Uh, uh, Daniel, I'll leave it to you if you would like to make a final overarching uh, comment uh, about uh, this work?
0: Sure. I think I think the most important uh, thing that we can all do as we engage in the political process is, is to take a 360 approach to this issue. You know, any policy that we are trying to get past as we move forward really needs to take into account both the social and the political determinants of health in order to have impact and save lives. You know, unless we do so, right, unless we do so, we will never truly move the needle towards health equity, and we'll continue to merely nibble around the edges of the problem of inequities in our country that will continue to hurt us as we move forward over the ensuing generations.
1: Right, we're all uh, left worse off. Per your mention of uh, Michael uh, Marmot, you know, he has this... uh, uh, relative income theory, where it's not just uh, the poor uh, suffer; it's everyone uh, on every rung of the of the wealth income ladder that uh, we're not, to phrase otherwise, immune from other persons' um, plight. And that's the pandemic is certainly uh, showing that to be true. So, with that, Daniel, yes. I genuinely appreciate the time the conversation. I wish you every success with the book. And uh, stay well uh, during uh, this unusual period of time.
0: Thank you, David. And the same to you and your family. I appreciate it. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.